So you should have open before you um, the Belgian Confession Article 20, and you'll find that on page 836 in the back of your Psalter hymnals, 836. Just put that aside, but it's kind of, hand, kind of neat to have it with you. You can refer to it, because I'm going to be referring to it as we go through this. So 826, Article 20 of the Belgian Confession, which we confessed earlier in the service. And then secondly, if you would turn with me in the Gospel of John to chapter 3. John chapter 3. And we're going to read the first 21 verses. John 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done through God. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters in Christ, 
All three of your pastors have, over the last year, and I think it was last year as well, been part of a peer preaching group, which means that we'd get together once in a while and talk about preaching. What does preaching involve? What makes good preaching? What does not make good preaching? What kind of examples can we use? And so forth. The discussion has been uh, long and great and wonderful and upbuilding for all of us. The Bible tells us, preach Christ crucified. That's one of the things that we've come to all the time, is preach Christ. Open the scriptures and direct us to Christ. So when the apostles of the early Christian church traveled throughout the Middle East and into Europe, they preached, as Paul put it, Christ crucified. That is, this, that is to say, they preached about the cross and about the one who was nailed to that cross. They preached the gospel about God who so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus. And this Jesus who came in obedience to the Father was not some ghost, not some extraterrestrial being. He was not some sort of spirit or non-entity. Rather, as Article 20 puts it, he assumed the nature in which our disobedience had been committed. And we talked about that in previous articles as well, the nature of Jesus. He assumed the nature in which the disobedience had been committed. That is to say, he assumed our very nature, the very nature in which we live and move and sin and he became like us in every way, except that he didn't sin. Neil Plantinga, in his book, A Sure Thing, puts it this way. Christians see Jesus Christ not just as Messiah, but as crossed-up Messiah. He is not just Emmanuel, but God with black eyes and a split lip and a beard matted with other men's spit he is not just one of us, but a scapegoat for all of us, like a kid in a class that everyone blames and mocks and kicks around, unquote. If you want to preach today, the message that I would have, the message that the Bible would have, is preach Christ crucified. And that's no small task or unimportant task. And certainly as we sat and talked together about preaching, we discovered it's not an easy task. But it's a task that strikes at the very heart of the Christian faith, Christ crucified. That my introduction. Now, if you're watching a sporting event on TV, for example, you see from time to time in the stands, in the hands of a spectator, usually at the end zones, or near the goals or whatever, a sign that reads, John 3, 16. I think you've seen that. And many of the spectators holding that sign are not shy about putting the sign up, particularly when the TV cameras are pointed in their direction. And I'm not sure that the people who are watching the television or watching the program always know what the text or what that sign refers to. But if they were to open the Bible, as we did tonight, to John 3, 16, 
you would know that it's a verse that stands, as it were, at the very heart of the Bible. It could be used, in some ways, as the theme text concerning what the Bible is all about. God's love letter to his people. You know, if the Belgic Confession were universally known, if it was known as well as John 3.16, then we could make up a sign and hold it up at a sporting event, which would read, B.C. 20. Belgian Confession, Article 20. Because if you want to know what the gospel is about, read Article 20 of the Belgian Confession. And it's an article that proclaims Christ crucified. Now, as we read this article together this evening, we were forced once again to take a close look at what happened to the person of Jesus as he lived and as he was nailed to the cross. And Guido de Bray, the author of this article, among all the others, wants us to know, wants us to make sure that the church understood that when looking at Jesus Christ, people would see both mercy, the mercy, and the justice of God. So by means of this Article 20, Debray is telling us that when one preaches Christ crucified, then one must proclaim in one breath, as it were, that God, who is perfectly merciful, is also very just. Mercy and justice go hand in hand. This article reflects the teaching of scripture such as 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, where we read, God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You hear that reflected in Article 20 as well. The first part of that text speaks about God's justice. The second part speaks to God's infinite mercy. This is basically the old, old story that the church has proclaimed down through the centuries. And it's important that young and old alike hear such a balanced message loudly and clearly. Preaching Christ crucified and talking about justice and mercy in one breath are not just religious words that really have no meaning or relevance to our daily lives, but this speaks to the very heart of the gospel. And when we talk about the gospel, it's important that a balanced message be proclaimed. Because as you and I have heard from many in this world, there are all kinds of distorted images of the gospel and distorted images of God. So on the one hand, there are those for whom God, a picture of God, does not include the righteous anger of a God who hates sin and is determined to punish and destroy it. Allow me to quote Plantinga once again. Rather, they hold to the view that God has only one attribute. God is love and nothing but love. He does not particularly hate sin because he does not hate at all. He does not get so excited he is good-natured and easygoing. He smiles endlessly. He is universalistic, and he tends to be something of a romantic, unquote. Now, that's the type of image of God 
purported by those who wish to offend no one or who wish to put forth a version of Christianity that's safe and exportable and doesn't deal with sin or judgment or punishment or anything of that sort. But on the other hand, and I've met many Christians like this, there is, the other than this exaggerated liberal notion of God, there are those who go to the opposite extreme. Again, planning it. In their eagerness to teach God's justice and wrath, they seem to lose sight of his love and mercy. Their God is an absolute God of vengeance, quick to anger and abounding in steadfast hatred of evildoers. He wipes out sinners on the merest, on the merest provocation and enjoys it. He looks for chances to destroy things and lets off steam. And actually, this latter idea of God as an absolute tyrant is actually a pagan notion of God. And it's traditionally mean the pagan deities are gods who are depicted as lashing out of the human race for doing something wrong. And so people interpret thunder and lightning and earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes as displays of the anger of the gods. The volcano explodes. God is angry with us. Now, neither of these two extreme ways of looking at God stand up to the teachings of Scripture. Both notions are wrong and may not be embraced as the truth concerning Christ crucified. If one preaches strictly and only about God's love and nothing else, it's not the complete counsel of God. If one would preach only about the anger and retribution of God on our sins, again, that would not be the complete full counsel of God. Because this is so, Debray in the confession, which the Reformed churches have adopted as a truthful interpretation of the teachings of Scripture, rejects both the liberal and the pagans of notions of God as I just described them. Instead, we believe you read it earlier, that God is perfectly merciful and also very just. While God loved this world so much that he gave his only son, and while God loves us in Christ Jesus, nonetheless, says John 3, whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So while God's love is very real, God's wrath against sin is also very real. And both must be considered and understood in order to have a balanced Christian faith and view of the gospel. So let's take a brief look at both. We believe that God is very just, says Article 20. How are we to understand that? Well, when we open the Bible to the very first chapters and the account of creation, we read that everything that the Lord made was perfect, was excellent. It was just the way that he wanted it, and it fully reflected the Father's glory. There was absolute harmony and peace. As you know the old story, all of it was shattered by mankind's blatant disobedience to God. People made from the very clay of the earth 
rebelled against the one who had made them. People who made were made from the clay of the earth rebelled against the potter, as it were, of all things. And as a result, the Bible tells us all of the creation was affected. And because of the fall into sin, the natural tendency of people is not to love God and our neighbor, but just the opposite, to hate God and our neighbor. But since we were the ones who messed everything up, we're also the ones who are held responsible. We did the crime, we have to do the time, so to speak. All humans are guilty before the Lord for missing the mark of perfection which he had established, and to use the language of the Belgian Confession, all humans are worthy of damnation. I know we don't use that language anymore. We don't talk about that kind of stuff anymore. But it's there. And God demands payment for our sinfulness. He demands our blood, our lives, as payment for the capital crime of disobedience. And that's no small thing. We ought never to kid ourselves. God will punish sin and does so severely both now and in eternity, as the Catechism puts it in answer 10. And yet, in spite of this truth, many live as though God wouldn't really do that. They don't really take God's justice seriously. Dr. James Kennedy writes about the discussion that he had with a particular woman. He had explained carefully to this woman, even quoting scripture, that God would and does punish sin, to which she replied, oh, my God would never do that. And after much effort to persuade her otherwise, he finally said, Madam, you're right. Your God, small g, would never do that. The problem is your God doesn't exist except in your own mind. You have created a God in your own image, according to your own liking, and now you have fallen down and worshipped him. This is idolatry. The perspective of that woman was not unique. Surely, God doesn't send people to hell for being an unrepentant sinner. Surely, God doesn't punish people for their sins. Come on, but that's old-fashioned. God is a God of love. So there are those who refuse to believe that hell is for real, and there are even churches who have gone on record who have reconsidered their positions on hell, on sin, on punishment, trying, I suppose, to make it all more palatable for the flock or for those who hear about the faith for the first time. After all, if you're trying to attract people to church, if you're trying to keep the people that you have, there are those who will tell you, not in so many words, of course, but the gist is the same. Remove everything that will offend others. Don't talk about justice and God's wrath and judgment and hell. We want people in. Don't tell them the bad news. Stick only to the good news. It was interesting. I heard a, an interview that R.C. Sproul did just before he died. He blasted the church for preaching simply about God as being a God of love and never talking about judgment and punishment and God's justice. The approach of the Bible is a balanced approach. So is the, reproach, the approach of the Reformed Confessions. God, 
who is perfectly merciful is also very just. The message of the Bible is clear in Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. That's what we find in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we read about the punishment of the unmerciful servant who was banished from the presence of the king and sent into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. God's punishment for sin is severe. And that's something that we need to understand because after all, all of us are unable to abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. All of us are cursed. All of us deserve to be banished forever. So great is our sin and so great is the debt that we owe the Lord for messing up his creation. And the Lord, by the way, demands that that debt be paid in full. A partial payment will not do. And the debt also increases as time goes on and it demand, demands an eternity of justice. God made everything perfectly, then we messed it up. So he is perfectly just in demanding payment, perfectly just in separating us from himself for all eternity, perfectly just in removing people from his grace and goodwill as a punishment for sin, as the potter is just in getting rid of the pots that are all broken and crashed and not good. And in our sin, of course, we deliberately have decided to separate ourselves from God. All this is sounding real terrible, and we're getting lower and lower in our seats. In his justice, God makes our will and desire his punishment. And if we indeed wish to live separate from his love, so be it for all eternity. God was and is angry about sin and our rebelliousness, and there is simply no way we can gloss over it because he's angry about sin. And he won't let us get away without paying the debt we owe him. We have to remember that truth always, especially in an age when Discipline seems to be waning and everyone's trying to be loving and kind and tolerant and understanding of when something goes wrong with someone. It's probably the result of their upbringing or their environment and so on. Sin in this age, talking about sin, seems to be a foreign, unknown word. And it seems to have less and less to do with the Christian life. And you begin to challenge people about sin in their life and they leave. They walk away. But sin is real. And the Lord holds us accountable for what we think, what we say, and what we do. Article 20. All of us are guilty and worthy of damnation. And we don't say that with any joy or with any excitement at all. It's a sobering reality. But the cruel thing is that the story doesn't end there. As our view of God needs to be balanced. For the Belgic Confession also teaches that God is also perfectly merciful. He is merciful in the sense that he would have been justified in destroying us all and keeping us all forever separated from him in hell. But he didn't do that. In love, he sent his one and only son, Jesus. And as the apostle writes in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us, 
or as the confession puts it, we believe that God sent his son to assume the nature in which the disobedience had been committed. You see, the bad news of our sinfulness and our sure punishment and worthy damnation and the good news of God's mercy in his Son goes hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Jesus came, assumed our human nature in body and soul and bore the punishment for your and my sin. He did it willingly and he did it out of that agape, self-giving love. As a matter of fact, Article 20 says, he presented himself in our name before his Father to appease his wrath, that is to appease the Father's wrath with full satisfaction by offering himself. It was all premeditated on Jesus' part. While we were the ones who were cursed and damned and lost forever, he came and offered himself to take our place on the cross in the face of God's fierce anger and justice. Jesus Christ became sin. That is, because he took all of the sins of believers on himself, he became filthy with sin. And as a result, says the, says the Belgian Confession, the Son was charged with our sin. He took the rap for us. And because of his filth and because he took the sins of the world upon himself, he stood condemned before the Father. He was sentenced to pay the price, the ultimate price. And so Jesus was executed on the cross. He became a curse, hanging between heaven and earth, not wanted by either. And there on the cross, he suffered the torments of hell, which meant that even God left him something that should rightly have happened to us. And at the time of extreme anguish, at the time he paid the ultimate price, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the perfect love of the Father and the Son for those who believe. And because Jesus paid the price, you and I will not have to pay the price. Jesus' death was sufficient. It satisfied God's justice. And so there on Golgotha, we come to see God for what he is, just and merciful. On Golgotha, we come to see exactly what God thinks of sin. He hates it. He condemns it. He punishes it. He demands a payment of blood for it. Sin is not something to be fooled around with or written off as something unimportant. God is very serious about it. But praise God, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he paid the price. Preach Christ crucified, just and merciful. Thanks be to God for his wondrous, incredible gift of salvation. Amen?